0: Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning
1: in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com.
0: Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, That at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments. Contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Thanks be to God.
1: Our Father in heaven, we we thank you for the access that we all have right now, the same access by one spirit to you, our Father. And we come to you now as a community of people who, despite our differences, have come to find a lot in common through you. This morning, whether or not we recognize it, Lord, we, we all are united here with today's own needs for you. So we come to come before you, God, as those who, who long for you. And if there's not a longing there, we pray that today you would create that longing. You would stir up that longing for us to look to you, to find everything we need. And, and specifically right now, God, we're, we're coming to you to hear from you through your word. Jesus, that's why we're here. We've gathered for five years now to center our lives and to center ourselves as a community around you. And you've spoken to us because you're faithful to do so through your word. You're a active presence in our lives, God. And we pray right now that your presence would be here in a strong way that you would be strong here for us and that, Holy Spirit, you would speak to us. God, we invite you to communicate now to us through your word in a way that I could never manipulate as a preacher. We just invite your power right now. We say, Holy Spirit, would you fall afresh on us, your people? We need your touch. We need your work. We need your word. We need your voice. We pray, Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear what you want to say. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. All righty. Well, moving along here. We are making our way through the book of Ephesians here for the springtime as a church, walking verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this remarkable book that was a letter penned by Pastor Paul, the Apostle Paul, who was a a pastor, had a pastor's heart towards this church that he helped plant in modern-day Turkey, a.k.a. Ephesus. This is some eight to ten years later after Paul has planted this church. He's following up with this church, bringing one of the most encouraging and helpful letters really in the the whole Bible. We've called Ephesians somewhat of a mountain peak of the mountain range of scripture. It, It really is that. It's this high point of beauty displaying who Christ is and what he's accomplished for those who are in him and what he's called us to. And so Paul is writing this church to this community in Ephesus and and he's written it with this title to the faithful ones. That's how he greets them. And this is the theme of our study in this book. As we're learning to live into the lives that God has called us to, which are specifically those that are rooted in Christ. That's the big preposition and theme phrase of the book of Ephesians, Uh, a Christian who's living from their position in Jesus, which is in him. We talk and think a lot about living for Jesus, but Paul has a lot more to say in this book about living in Jesus living from your position in him. So each week we're looking at a different aspect of life in Christ. And here in the verses we just read that Dane read to us there, 11 through 22, go ahead and write this down. Here's the big idea or the title of what Paul is talking about here in these verses. Paul is talking about how we have been made one in Christ. One in Christ. So far through Ephesians, we started by seeing God as the great giver. That's Ephesians 1. Ephesians is just giving us all these displays of God so that we don't have to live with assumptions about God or, or have confidences about God. We can live with, with true confidence to the reality of who he is. We can live from a confidence of what he's revealed, and that's what Ephesians has been giving us, these true pictures of God. And we've seen him first as the great giver. That's Ephesians 1. That God is the great giver who has blessed us, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul goes on to display a God who's the great revealer, who opens our eyes to see the wonders of his blessings in our lives. You get to chapter two and Paul portrays this God who is a great reviver, who himself has conquered death and he conquers the death in our lives as well. And he's the one who makes us alive in Jesus. Even when we're dead in our trespasses and sins, God is a revivalist, not in the sense that he promotes revival, but he brings revival. He brings us back from the dead, and then we see, last week we studied Jesus being used by the Father to display God as this great Savior who has transformed our entire lives through his grace. And then we get here to these verses we read, and we see God as the great, go ahead and write this down, the great unifier. We've seen him as the great giver, revealer, reviver, and savior. But here at Ephesians 2, God is displayed as the great unifier, the great uniter, who has made us one in and through the work of the cross. This is a, display of the power of the, of the gospel to not only, listen closely, reconcile us to God. That's kind of been Paul's big theme. All the brokenness that's existing between us and God, Jesus has come to restore and bring beauty and bring glory. Where there's death, he brings life. Where we're lost, he brings salvation. Where, we're, where there's poverty, he brings wealth. This is the good news of what God has done in reconciling us to himself. But, but I love that Paul doesn't have this sort of unilateral, singular understanding of salvation. Paul teaches here in this passage that reconciliation must also be horizontal as much as it's vertical. This is part of the gospel. That God not only reconciles us to himself, but he reconciles us to himself together. He reconciles us to each other. He makes us one through the cross. As as Paul says here in these verses, it was verses specifically 14 through 18, Paul says that we are now one new man. He's speaking of the church, right? This unified people. We've been reconciled in one body. We're one people. Paul is speaking here about true and substantial unity that you can find, that you should find within the church of God. It's a unity, let me say this, that exists within diversity. It's not unity by bringing conformity. It's the beauty of this room right now where you look around and there's all sorts of different faces and backgrounds and colors and and expressions and testimonies and journeys. But in our diversity, there's one thing we have in common, Jesus. He's our savior. He's our Lord. He's our king. He's our reviver. He's our source of blessing and goodness. And he has made us, through him, one. This is what Paul is talking about. The beauty of the church displaying God's work to bring unity in diversity. Uh, This is something that our culture is longing for. Have you noticed this? Maybe it's often just kind of in a sentimental way. You know, we are the children of the world, kind of a thing song. You know what I'm saying? Something on the PBS station. But, you know, this idea of, of we just need to be one. There's a desire in our culture to see this diverse world become a unified humanity. Um, but apart from Jesus, what you end up with is substitute forms or counterfeit forms of true unity. We see this all the way back, even at the Tower of Babel, where mankind is seeking unity apart from God himself. What do you have when you substitute the unity that the cross brings for a, a unity or, or an attempt at unity that the world brings? You have the, these three options. First, you have the, the more obvious one, which is the problem that often uh, is faced in every culture. Uh, I mean, this isn't a new thing, but this is really the story of the beginning of time. Since the fall of man, you have first hostility between people groups. This is what you have apart from Jesus. You have people who live at war because of their differences. And if there's not hostility, there's some attempt at there's a desire for unity. So this is one we see a lot of times where you end up with um, this like pseudo form of unity. We'll just call it superficiality, where no one really addresses the hatred or the prejudice or the or the um, favoritism in their hearts, but they sort of deal with it by you know everyone needs to smile and say hi to one another. It's sort of like the superficial unity that that's that's cloaked in religion or it's cloaked in politics, um, but but it's it's often, by the way, a very powerful tool that po- po- uh, politicians will leverage, won't they? To try to get people on their side. They say, we're doing this in the name of unity. And it's like, that's your politician, first of all. There's nothing authentic about you, okay? But you are especially superficial with your own understanding of unity. It's kind of a half-hearted unity that's not really um, impactful in any way. Or, or here's the most, speak of politics and how they tend to do this, you, you have another form of this, which is uniformity. We want to create Communiformities of people who all exist to to fit in the same way. And there's, you know, hyper tyrannical versions of this where we're gonna have unity because we're gonna make you conform to the pattern of what we want you to be and how we want you to talk and how we want you to think and how we want you to live. And if you don't, you know, like dot all these I's and cross all these Ts, you're not in, and you're the problem to our unity, is you're the way you are. And that's what can happen in culture as well. And it can be tyrannical. It can be genocidal. Isn't that crazy to think? I mean, this is history. Attempts at unity that lead to genocide. Okay, unity. And it's this forced uniformity. And by the way, we could also have all of these in churches. This can be in our church too. You could have hostility, you know. The Boca community group is better than the Pompano community group, man. Come on, what's up? Set up team versus kids team. I'm just kidding, Obviously. obviously sarcastic but but this is common in any group of people where sin can can get a footing and we can start to favor some people over others and there can even become hostility in churches division or 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 its other enemy which is superficiality which is hostility undercover god bless you brother welcome to solace it's good to see you come sit not next to me okay like Or the third, uniformity. Wouldn't this be sad? Like you go to church and you are who God made you to, made you to be, and in, 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 not in a, in a sinful sense, but in an authentic sense. And there's like these unexplained rules. If you want to fit in here, you need to worship this way. We don't do this. When we worship, we do this. Okay, that's how we do it here. Or, or what translation of the Bible do you have? What's that? It's an NIV? Some have called that the nearly inspired version, okay? I have an ESV, the elect standard version. or the, And we could create these uniform, don't we do this, by the way? Don't we? And we, they're unspoken rules often. We're kind of like, oh yeah, they're almost in. You know, the opposite of belonging isn't rejection, it's fitting in. Where you compromise who you are to make people, listen, we we don't want any of these to be true of our church. And this is what's true of the world. This is all you're left with apart from Jesus, hostility, superficiality, or uniformity. But what Paul is describing here in Ephesians 2 is substantial unity that comes through Jesus. Unity even in our diversity. We see a great picture of this in Revelation 5.9. Here's a picture of the church at the end of the age. And look at this beautiful Vision of unity and diversity, the unity found in Jesus. You are worthy, singing this new song to Jesus. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This is the vision of eternity future. The church of Jesus not segregated in their own little cliques or their own little racial differences or, you know, in their own little community groups of personality preferences. We see this picture of the church being made up of all kinds of people united together substantially around Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful thing to see? Isn't that an awesome thing for us to desire? Now here in in Ephesians 2, the verses again that we read, Paul is unpacking what this should look like in the local church, but he doesn't use... Um, When he describes kind of the unity and diversity of of all people groups, uh, Paul doesn't call like all these different nations. What he does is he breaks up the entire world into two groups, right? There there are two groups that this is what the scripture often does as well. There are two groups that Paul describes the ultimate uh, contention being between, and it's through Jew And Gentile, the word Gentile is where you get, literally the word is where you get the word ethnics or like other nations. Uh, And that is really the conflict of hostility that existed in Paul's day. You have the Jews, which are the covenant people of God, chosen in his grace called out from the world through Abraham. Abraham wasn't like a, a God-fearing, worshiping you know, farmer that God picked to follow him because he was worthy. Abraham was a moon-worshiping pagan is who he was. And God's like, in my grace, I select you and it's through you that I'm gonna do something special for the whole world. We'll talk about that. But God selects Abraham. And it's the nation of Israel who received the covenant promises of God's blessing in a fallen world. And then there's Gentiles and those who are outside of those promises, those who are outside of that covenant. Uh, and it's these two people groups that Paul is describing. Really, he's lumping all of humanity into these two. Like even today, we still fall into the same categories. Um, we have our own ethnic backgrounds, but you could categorize all of humanity into either Jew or Gentile. In, uh, inside of the covenant family of God or outside of the covenant family of God. And this is what's interesting. What Paul is saying here is that Christ has brought unity to these two conflicting, hostile groups. Uh, This is the theme of Ephesians in a lot of way. Uh, Paul is like, this is one of his favorite things to talk about. How through the gospel, uh, Jew and Gentile is is, is no longer a division. Paul was saying Galatians, there's no longer Jew and Gentile. We're all one in Christ. This is like one of his big themes. He talks about it. We looked at this a couple weeks ago in Ephesians 1 where uh, Paul says this is the mystery of Ephesians which isn't like a Sherlock Holmes kind of idea. Uh, the world mystery is something that God, that is, is only going to be known if it's revealed. It's not unknowable. It's just um, with, you'll be without knowledge unless it's revealed. And here's what's been revealed through Jesus. Here's the great mystery of the ages, that it's always been God's plan, his good pleasure, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, that God would gather together in one all things in Christ both are which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. And Paul goes on to unpack this all throughout Ephesians, that, that from the very beginning, when God selected Abraham, his purpose wasn't to create eternal division between the nations. In fact, it's, it's actually interesting if you think about it, there are two separations that God himself makes in the book of Genesis. There's the separation of man from woman. We know that's a separation. Hello, okay? And there's a separation between Abraham, the nation of Israel, from the other nations. God says these, these must be separate. They're different. They're distinct. There's man, there's woman. There's Israel, there's Jew, there's Gentile. And both of, Paul's saying this is the mystery. Both of those separations that were initiated by God are separated for the same purpose unity unity in difference he separates man from woman and he says okay now get married and learn this thing called becoming one i like to say at weddings when i'm officiating them like when the bible says like the two shall become one that's not that doesn't happen at i do okay that doesn't happen as i will that's a lifelong journey of two backgrounds two people two Two weird people with weird things, weird, weird tendencies becoming one. That's a journey of unity. That's God separating for unity. And the same has been true of God's plan for Israel all along. He told Abraham, I'm calling you out, separating you so that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. See, prior to Abraham, there was, the, the, there was Project Unity at the Tower of Babel where mankind sought to unify apart from God. So God, God had to scatter that business and he had to call Abraham to himself to create a truly unified people that weren't unified apart from God, but were unified in God. And this is what Paul is saying has ultimately come to pass through the church. Are you with me? The church exists as this, as this picture of how God has reconciled even the most different among us to one another. Paul says, uh, there's, there's really three things in this passage that Dane read to us. Um, in, in this passage, Paul is unpacking God's work in forming this unified community of diverse people who end up in Solus Church one day. Uh, these, these people who have become one in Christ. In and through the cross of Christ, Paul says there's three things that God has done. He's bridged the gap of Gentile distance. We need to know this. This is what he's done to make Jew and Gentile one, to build this new community called the church. He's I think the phrase is broken down, but it just felt better to say he broke down. He broke it down. He broke, God breaks it down. I like that. God broke down the wall of ethnic separation. So he bridged the gap of Gentile distance. He broke down the wall of ethnic separation. This is all through Christ and the cross. And he's begun the formation of a new community. I mean, I don't know if we often think about this when we think about the gospel, Do we? God sent his son Jesus into the world. We often think just to like bring man back to God, but it's so much broader and more beautiful than that. The power of the gospel is it reconciles you and I in these three ways. Let's look at the first one. The first thing Paul says is that God has bridged the gap of Gentile distance. He says this in Ephesians two eleven. therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hand. So so Paul is, is alluding to the beef that exists between Jew and Gentile. Um, for those of you over 50, the conflict that exists between Jew and Gentile. You're like, there's beef that exists? Like, I thought, the, isn't that like kosher? Is that part of the law, beef? Like, There's a conflict between Jew and Gentile. And, and Paul is speaking to it by, by actually, he's describing the smack talk that happens. He's like the Jews called the Gentiles the uncircumcised. You know, you uncircumcised Philistine. All right? That circumcision was a display of their belonging to God. We're in the covenant. You're not. Okay? So it was like an Old Testament diss, all right? It's talking some trash. Now, now Paul is speaking to the Gentiles. The, the church at Ephesus is made up of mostly Gentile. And he wants them to understand, listen, that they're saved in Jesus? But a, but a big part of, of moving towards and in and from the unity they have now in Jesus is remembering where they've come from. Yes, God has reconciled Jew and Gentile, but a Gentile needs to like sit down for a second and be humble and like think about what God has done in this work. He, he says you need to remember where you've come from. lest you become entitled to your salvation, remember your life apart from Jesus as a Gentile. And, and here's what he says, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, you were strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and you were without God in the world. So he's reminding these Gentiles about their lives apart from Jesus. And if, if you're a Gentile, especially in this day and age, the, and it's the same is true today, that, that as a Gentile, you're at a, you could say you're at like a spiritual disadvantage, you're distant from the things of God. There's a gap, there's a space because it's Israel who has been chosen and favored and selected by God to be heirs of the promises of God and all the things he's describing. Here's what Paul says about it in Romans 9. Paul's unpacking this, this is the NLT. Paul says, you're allowed to have that translation. That's all as well, okay? But Paul says, they are the people of Israel chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them. He gave them his law. He gave them, Israel, the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors, and Christ himself was, as, was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned, and he is God. Christ is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Paul says, Amen. What he's saying to the Gentiles is you're not entitled to your salvation. It's not your birthright. Well, I'm an American. You're a Gentile. Okay, that's what he's saying. We can just become so used to the salvation of Jesus. We've Americanized it so much. We've ripped it out of its Jewish history. There's even pastors today saying that we need to divorce the New Testament from the Old Testament. And Paul's like, don't ever think that way. Remember that you weren't born into your salvation or into the privilege of knowing God. This is something as a Gentile, which I'm assuming that most of us are. I'm gonna say most of us are Gentiles. Paul's saying, remember where you've come from. He de- he describes, now, let me say that like salvation through the work of, of Christ is significant for all people, Jew and Gentile alike. That's what he's gonna get at. But it's especially true for a Gentile. He says, Here's your life apart from Jesus. As a Gentile, there is a time where he just lists like you're without Christ. Aliens from the Commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. You had no hope. You were without God in the world. (laughs) So you had a bad day. You know, like you with me. You know what I'm saying? These are some significant things. He says, apart from as a Gentile, remember this. This is you. you. You weren't Israel. You were. You weren't the ones who were promised the Messiah. You were without Christ. Without Christ, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. To have Jesus and nothing else is to have everything. To not have, listen, to not have anything, but to have Jesus is to have everything. Everything. But again, to have everything but not Jesus is nothing. Nothing. Have, and he's saying you were without Christ. Now, the Greek word there, Christos, the anointed one. This isn't Jesus' last name in a phone book, right? Christ describes who Jesus is as the anointed promised Messiah for Israel. There are three um, offices in Israel that were anointed, three offices that were anointed um, in, this, in the way that Christ is ultimately the fulfillment of. We, most of us know this there's the office of prophet, of priest, and king. Jesus comes to be the prophet that Moses writes about. He's the great high priest, and he is the king of kings. Um, And Paul's saying as a Gentile, think about your life apart from Jesus as you're without Jesus the prophet. You're without truth. The scariest place to be in life is to be self-deceived into believing some narrative that's not true about you, about life, about right and wrong, about God. Apart from Jesus, you don't have the prophet, you don't have Christ, you don't have the priest, the mediator between you and God, the one mediator. Let me tell you, there's no man, human man on earth right now that can mediate between you and God, but you do need mediation. You can't work your way or curry God's favor through your performance. You need someone to stand in the gap. And the only person that could ever stand in that gap eternally is Jesus, who's the one mediator between God and man, because he is both the son of God and the son of man. He steps in that place. Without Christ, you're without mediation. Without Christ, you're without a king. And you're left bowing the knee to earthly kings. You're left, worst of all, making yourself king. Ruling your own government of your own life. There's no security in that. And every kingdom of this world is going to fade away except for the kingdom of Jesus. One day the Bible says in Revelation that all the kingdoms of this earth will become the kingdoms of Jesus. They're all going to bow the knee to him. So so without Christ, you're without prophet, you're without the priest, you're without the king. He says, not only that, but you're aliens from the state of Israel And you're strangers from the covenants of promise. This is unique to Israel. They were the ones to whom God gave his promises and his covenants. I mean, incredible promises. Promises of restoration and salvation. And, and, you know, the reliability of any promise is the promiser, isn't it? (laughs) That's how you can trust in a promise. Um, Promise is the basis of covenant. It's the basis of it. I vow to do this in this covenant. I promise. And the reliability of those vows is the person vowing. Who are they? What other promises have they made? Now, here's what's amazing about God. God has never made a promise that he's failed to keep. Ever. Now, you go, well, he hasn't done this yet. Key word there is yet. That means he hasn't done it in your timetable or in the way that you expected. But God, you can trust his character. He's trustworthy. Jesus is faithful faithful. And true. But to be apart from Jesus is to be apart from the promises of God. Ultimately, this speaks to the promise of the Messiah making all things right. And then lastly, I mean, he, he kind of is like, if this is too like coded, he's like, let's make it simple. You have no hope. That was, this, that was the state of life apart from Jesus as a Gentile. I have no hope. And, and the word hope there, it doesn't speak to like Maybe you're here today and you're like, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, but I I'm hopeful. It's like, well, that's not what that's speaking to. This isn't speaking to wishful thinking and positive energy or whatever the heck is out there in the world today, okay? Vibes. Gotta have vibes, okay? I don't have Jesus. I don't have good vibes, man. That's not what this is saying, okay? Having no hope. The word hope there is the it's the biblical understanding of hope, which is something confident and sure and steadfast. It's something that's a fact or a reality. So we're gonna study on Easter Sunday that. Our hope is as alive as Jesus. Jesus is alive. Your hope will never die. It's a fact. It's a fact. Hope in the Bible is not how you feel. It's it's what are the facts. And and so Paul is saying like you can feel hopeful, but that's not the state of your hope. Hope is a reality. It's something that is secured by God. It's it's what's going to happen when you die. It's how does God feel toward you? What about your sin? I mean, hope. It's amazing how, with this understanding, you can, um, you can be the most hopeless person in the room and have hope. Isn't that awesome? You ever felt hopeless? Come on. Like, the Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. That doesn't change what Jesus has done for you. It doesn't change your hope. Now, conversely, Paul's saying, you can be the most hopeful person in the room. A lot of people hoped in the Titanic, didn't they? They're like, this, thing's, this thing ain't going to sink. It's going to float on. It's not your feeling of hope. It's the reality of hope. Paul's saying, apart from Jesus, you have no hope for life after death. And then he says, you're a functional atheist. You're living without God in the world. You might have some concept of a God far off who created everything. Sort of like some kind of like a moral deism. He kind of set some moral order and then disappeared. But apart from Jesus, this is the Gentile, a pagan. You're functioning in life without God in your world. He says, Gentiles, remember the key phrase here, remember that you as a Gentile, you had this distance between you and God. And and let me say, this is true of all of us in a lot of ways. Isn't it apart from Jesus? All of these descriptors, but we've been looking at a lot of, I'm gonna say great buts in the Bible. I'm gonna say great buts in the Bible. Ephesians 2.13, but now, here's what's changed Gentile, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, without hope, without Christ, without prophet, priest, and king, without God in the world, a stranger from the promises of God, you who were far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. This is what God has come to do through Christ for Gentiles. Not Born into the promises of God, not born into the hope of God's promises, but saved into, born again into through the cross of Jesus. And what's this display? Again, that's that first point there that God has bridged the gap of Gentile distance through Jesus. God has brought you, listen, closer to God than you could ever desire. Closer to God than you could ever desire. What this means is, despite how close you feel to God in terms of you walking with him, that through Jesus, God is always walking with you. He's always walking. There's a difference between you walking with God. We need to talk about that. That's important. You should walk closely with God. But did you know that God always walks closely with you? He's never like, I need, I need some space, <laughs> okay? You are a mess, all right? Give me a week. I need a vacation, all right? Jesus said, I'm gonna always be with you. I'm going to bring you near, and nothing can snatch you out of my hand. This is the work that he's done for Gentiles. He's bridged the gap. So now today, Gentiles, we can rejoice. We we can gather in churches all across the world. I've been to churches in Morocco, in Latin America, all over in England, and seen Christians, Gentiles from all the nations, worshiping God in nearness because of what Christ has done for them. This is what God has done. He's also done more than that. He hasn't just bridge the gap of Gentile distance. He's also, that second one is that he broke down the wall of ethnic separation through the cross. So he brings the Gentiles near through the gospel, saves them from their condition and situation. And then in uniting Gentile and Jew together, he breaks down a wall of separation that he describes. In Ephesians 2.14, it says, for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, or hostility, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. He abolished that through the gospel, which is what separated Jew and Gentile, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, Jesus the ultimate peacemaker, thus making peace that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting death to the hostility that existed between these ethnicities, between these people groups. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and to those who were near. I love that. The gospel's for the religious and the irreligious. It's for the pagan and it's for for the God-fearing American that comes to church every Sunday morning. Notice the big quotes I threw on that, all right? He preached peace to both you who are near and you who are far off, for through him we both, or we all, have access by one spirit to the Father. He's broken down the wall of ethnic separation. There was literally, in the time of Israel, and in the time that this was written, there was a literal wall in the temple that separated where the Jews could access and where the Gentiles could access. This is what Paul is speaking about when he says that Jesus is our peace, who has broken down the middle wall. And how did he do that? He abolished in his flesh the enmity, the wall that was erected there existed because of these laws, these ceremonial laws that God himself put into place to create a holy nation, to be a light to these pagan nations that actually created a separation between them. And what Christ comes to do, I love this, is in the cross, here's what the Bible teaches, Jesus himself comes to fulfill the law. All all that the law does, it shows us the moral absolutes of God. What does the law do? It shows us the moral absolutes of God. And it shows us that we fail to abide by the moral absolutes of God. Paul says the law is a tutor coming alongside of, you know, to help you with your algebra and help you understand how much you need a savior. Okay, good old tutor. The law is there to show you that you need Jesus. Jesus. Ultimately, it was a shadow pointing to him. It was all types that that he fulfilled in himself. And so at that time, there's this great conflict between these two groups, hostility even. We we see this even with Jesus and his disciples when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. It's like, what what are you doing speaking to her, Jesus? She's not a purebred Jew. She's mixed race. I mean, the racism runs so deep. It was religious, it was, it was racial, it was ritual, all these different things that caused division between Jew and Gentile. And Paul says, those things don't exist anymore in Jesus. Jesus, through the cross, I love what he says here. He has taken these two and he's made them one. Notice this phrase, reconciling them to one another, putting death to the hostility that was between them. There's no longer this this law-based system that makes some people closer to God than others. You you see, um, what Paul is saying here is this. Listen closely. A couple things. First, the root of racism is sin. It's sin in the heart of every man that has a tendency to be hostile towards people different than me. I tend to gravitate in comfort towards people like me. I tend to distance myself from people who are not like me. And I settle for misunderstanding or assumption rather than the heart of God, which is compassion and understanding and pursuit and relationship. And at the heart of it is is sin. The result of racism in the world is hostility. And this isn't like, by the way, a modern American conversation. This goes back centuries How many different people groups all over the world? I mean, even the Muslim world—you have Shiite and Sunni that 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 fight against each other. It's like any time in history, you go, you find that sin produces hostility between people. And Paul is saying, the root of it's sin, the result of it is hostility. We see it through Jew and Gentile. The remedy is Christ. What's the solution to racism? Jesus. He brings the solution. He brings the salvation the transformation of the human heart. You see, through the, this is what Paul is saying, that there was hostility, but through the cross, the hostility's gone. Why? Because, listen, through the cross, Jesus brings down these dividing walls that we put up between each other, doesn't he? We, we're like, oh, I'm, it's, we, it's called othering, right? You're over there, I'm over here. And whatever middle wall it is, it might not be Jew and Gentile, but maybe for you it's, it's personality, it's background, it's like, you know, what neighborhood they live in in South Florida, what, you know, socioeconomic. There's so many different versions of this. There's racism, there's different forms of prejudice. But there's these walls that we create, and through the gospel, through the cross, what Jesus does is he, he levels the playing field of humanity. He brings down the wall, because the cross, as, as Paul says here, it shows us something very significant. We're all the same, that's what Paul says. We're all the same. A couple ways. He says we have the same creator. That's what he says here in this verse. He's created a new man. No matter how different you are are than me, you're made in the image of God. You're made different on purpose, actually. Our differences are, are beautiful. And we're the same. We have the same creator. We have the same condition. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Every human made by God, created in his image in their own unique way and fallen. This is Romans one through three where Paul's like, it doesn't matter if you Jew, if you're Gentile, if you're from Boca or Pompano, like it doesn't matter. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The cross levels the playing field. I see that you're just like me. You're more like me than you're different. You're made by God. You have the same condition. You have the same salvation. You're saved by grace through faith, like me. Maybe another way to say this is we have the same Savior. Jesus is that common uniter. And lastly, I love that he says this. He says, we have the same access. God doesn't give certain people special access to him like because you're kind of like some, some category of person in the group. You're on the highest end of the totem pole in society, and so you get special access, okay? You get that special access to God. But Paul's like, no, no, there's no room for that. He says, For we have access, I love this, by one spirit to the Father. This is this is what makes us all in common. We can never boast before one another because it's not our works that have gained us favor or access to God. It's not our knowledge. There's a humility here. We go, it's Jesus. Jesus, He's, he's given me access. In fact, the word access there is really interesting. Um, uh, um, there, there's kind of debate about what the better word is to be translated. Access makes sense in the, in the sentence structure, but the Greek word literally means introduction, which is really cool. In that culture, the, the Greek word, which I am going to do my best, to, you're excited for this, I'm gonna say it. You ready for this? Okay, prosage, heyo, all right, that's the Greek word. And a prosage was someone in a, a, royal, um, in a royal kingdom, a prosage was someone who would give you access to the king. So, so you'd show up at the, at the kingdom and you'd want to meet the king and you couldn't just like walk up on your like, what's up, king? What's up, it's me, peasant boy. What's good? All right, you couldn't do that. You needed a prosage to guide you, to give you access to the king. And I love this. Through Jesus, we have access by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is who brings us to the Father. So we have the same creator, the same condition, the same salvation. We have the same access to Through the gospel of Jesus, which leaves no more room for division over our differences, it causes us to unite around our Savior. Jesus has broken down the wall of ethnic separation, not just through Jew and Gentile, but as we see there in Revelation 5, every tribe and nation and tongue. This is the church, a multi-ethnic, multi-generational, multi-economic community of people, And that's what's beautiful about the church. We come together with our differences. And God uses those things to create something more beautiful than any of us on our own. This is the last thing that Jesus has come to do. He's begun the formation of a new community called the church. Christ has broken down the wall of ethnic separation. He's bridged the gap of Gentile distance. And then with this new community of people, he's begun a work of formation. In this one new man who've become one in Christ. He says, Now therefore, I love this, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. He's speaking to Gentiles. He wants them to understand that they're no longer who they were apart from Jesus, but through the gospel, we're one, we're fellow citizens with the saints, we're members of the household of God. He uses three illustrations. And we're being built, we have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. So Jesus has begun the formation of this new community of, of different backgrounds, of different cultures, of different cultures united in one around him with no longer these these walls of division and separation and segregation were one in him in a substantial way, not in a superficial way, not in a a conformist way, but in a a beautifully diverse way. And, and, And he's emphasizing this to these Gentiles that you're included in this. He uses, write these down. Paul uses three illustrations to describe who we are now as the church. I think this is so profound. He says we're fellow citizens, we're family members, and we're founded stones. This is who we are in Jesus together. I mean church, I mean it, when we get this, right? Like we no longer show up on Sunday to attend a service. I'm going to serve, I'm going to church. You start to th- you start to rewire how you understand the covenant family of God. You start to re- rewire and reapproach church altogether. When you go, "Wait, I'm no longer a foreigner in this family?" But through the gospel, I I not only have a new father, but I have some new brothers and sisters. And I am a fellow citizen. That's the first thing he says. In Christ, the church, we're fellow citizens. There's no one in this room in Christ who's a second-class citizen. You know, someone who who hasn't been around long enough. See, in Jesus, Paul, Paul is speaking to something profound in that culture. You know, in that culture, Roman citizenship was everything. It's like if you could be a Roman citizen, you could get through doors that nobody else can. You you had the stamped permission and approval of the Roman government. You had certain privileges. And Paul writes about this idea in Philippians 3 when he tells the church that our citizenship is in heaven, that we are citizens of of a higher throne, of a greater kingdom, the kingdom of God. If you're in the church of Jesus, you are a member of the citizenship of heaven. And and you're a vital part of what God's doing in this world. You play a role in his kingdom. You're a substantial citizen. He also says this, we're family members. We're we're family members. You're, You're not just sons and daughters, you're brothers and sisters. He says, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but citizens with the saints. This is so good. And you're members of the household of God. Before anything, the church is a family. You know, how many of us know, like, you don't get to pick your family, you know what I'm saying? You don't get to pick your siblings. Like, I pick, you know, it's like, that's your sibling, and you're their sibling, you know what I'm saying? This is the church, this beautiful display of a whole, healthy, healed, dysfunctional, messy family that Jesus brings together as one. And this is God's heart. I mean, this has been our heart for Solace from the beginning is, God, help us not, like, just get into religious routine help us function as a family that's what you've called us to be let every sunday gathering be a family reunion let it be a time where we gather around the goodness of our father and let's do life together as family does i love this, this verse in 1 timothy 5 paul says do not rebuke an older man but exhort him as a father younger men as brothers older women As mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. He's telling Timothy, when you lead the church, look at the older men as dads in the church. Isn't that cool? Look at the older women as mothers, the younger men and women as brothers and sisters. Paul says, This is the new family that God has formed through the gospel. And lastly, we close with this last idea. Invite the, the band to come out here as we close with this last idea of founded stones. We're founded stones. He says, we're stones in a temple. We're a building, the church, that's being fitted together, piece by piece. Each stone matters. You matter to what God's doing here at Solus. And we're growing into a holy temple in the Lord. I want you to see this. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. In that culture, there was certainly the temple of Israel that, that Paul is pointing to, but there was also a famous temple in Ephesus, the temple of Artemis, which was a sinful and corrupt, and it was a a demonic house of worship to a pagan false god that was that was like the 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 center of culture in that time. And Paul is giving them a vision. He's like, you you see what that that temple is to the culture? See how it draws people in and it takes everything from them? Well, he's saying the church is like a reverse temple of Artemis in in culture. As as we do life together, as we exist here, Solus and all the other communities locally, we're temples that, that God doesn't put in Boca to bring people in to take life from them, to take everything from them. That's what would happen at the temple of Artemis but the church is the dwelling place of the very presence and spirit of God. Think about this, that when we both gather and scatter, we're a temple of blessing to the world around us. What a vision that, that as a church community, we would be a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Paul says here, this is what Jesus is up to. Whether Solas is five years old or 10 years old or two years old, God is building us together. You're you're a vital stone in what God is constructing. Like think of a wall, stone, like the picture here is like, you need to lean on other people. You're built on other people. You can't just build a temple with one stone. Each layer depends on the other. And there's other stones on top of you that depend on you. God's doing something special and unique. And he's doing it in your workplace too. It's not just here. When we go out, his, the Bible says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This has been God's plan from the beginning of time to form, listen to this again, one new community in Christ, to make us one in Jesus. And there's a lot to reflect on with this as we close. There's this idea of, first of all, have I been mindful or have I been forgetful of where I was apart from Jesus and what God has done for me in Jesus. Is it verses 11 through, through 13 there that you need to think about and remember that you were far apart from Jesus, but God has brought you near. Maybe today the thing to meditate on is what sort of walls of separation have I put between me and someone else? Walls that Jesus has come to break down, that he's come to level through the cross. It causes me to to be thankful that God loves me and it produces within me a love for everyone else. And then lastly, maybe you think about the church and you think about who God has made you to be and maybe how you've been thinking about yourself or approaching life in the church. And you go, I've been living or thinking like a second-class citizen. That's how I think about myself is a lie. It's not true through the gospel. Or I'm, you know, I don't really fit in to this family. You don't have to fit into the family of God. You belong in the family of God through Jesus. Or maybe you go, God, I, I want to be a dwelling place of your spirit. I don't know about you. Like, I don't look back on my week and I'm like, this was the week where Andrew was just a dwelling place of God's Holy Spirit. That's not something we feel often. It's something we trust. We say, God, make that true in my life. What a vision for our week. So as we close, we wanna remind ourselves of the grace of God over our lives. Let's take a moment to meditate on these things. We we like to do this in closing because the purpose of this time is is to allow God's word to take root in our heart as we come into his presence. So God has spoken to us through his word. Now let's speak to him. Create a secret place between you and God right now, right in your seat as we commune and connect with God. Let's re-surrender our lives to him and let him lead us into whatever he